All right, so yes, welcome. We're really glad you're here and just trusting and praying that the Lord will bless you and speak to you through His Word this morning. But before we get into that, except for one very big announcement, and it's, uh, it's a very bittersweet announcement. And so uh, our brother Jacoby Jordan, who's been leading us in worship um, for quite some time now, is moving to Manteca, and he's going to be uh, a full-time youth pastor at a church there called Refuge Church. You might say that Jacoby's kind of a big deal, and, uh, you know, uh, word got out about his awesomeness, and uh, someone reached out and said they had a real need there, and it was just such a sweet opportunity, and this is the kind of thing that pastors just love to see. You know, you want to see guys get raised up into ministry and see awesome opportunities be afforded to them and for them to go out and uh, just step into the fullness of what God has called them to do and to have more and more radical opportunities to uh, serve God and use their gifts. And so as much as uh, we love Jacoby and we'll miss him dearly, deeply, uh, it, won't even, it won't just be an absence of him on the stage here leading us in worship. There will be a real uh, absence just amongst the flock. He's one of those guys that, as he loves to say, he loves to loiter at the local church. And he really understands the deep blessing of being connected with the body of Christ. And he has modeled that, I think, better than most. And so uh, his, you know, his, uh, his absence is going to be you know, felt by us all. But at the same time, we rejoice, we celebrate, and how the Lord is going to be using him in Manteca, and uh, especially amongst that youth group, there's a, a, a really tremendous need there for a brother like Jacoby. So we're going to bring him up, and I'm going to pray for him. <laughs> brother, we love you very much, love and uh, we're going to miss you. miss you, but we're excited for you in this next season, so... We're going to pray for you, all right? Okay. Father God, we love you so much, and we are grateful for brothers and sisters in Christ, for the family of God, and we're grateful for our fellow laborers and co-workers in your, in your great work, God. We thank you that Jacoby has been such a blessing to this church on and off through the years, and has been such a blessing to our church as of late, and just the model that he has set for us the example that he has set and uh, the blessing that he has been. Lord, we just can't thank you enough. And we're going to miss him dearly, uh, but at the same time, we're very excited about this opportunity that you are opening up for him. And so we say praise you, Lord. Praise you and thank you, and may your work be accomplished through our brother here. And so we just pray a special blessing over him. And uh, we just pray that you would fill him fresh with your spirit, that you would use him mightily, that you would equip him. God, our sufficiency is not in ourselves. It is in you and in your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word. And so, uh, Father, we just send him out with a blessing, and we thank you, God, for uh, what you will continue to do through him now in this next season of life. And so we praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to John chapter 12. We begin John chapter 12 this week, verses 1 through 11. We'll read that together in a moment, but I just want to kind of start with some opening thoughts. The question has been asked, what do we exist to do? What is the purpose of it all? What is the, the chief end of man, specifically, is how the question is asked in the Westminster, Westminster Catechism, and the answer to it is glorious. 
and that is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I mean, that's very succinctly put, but it is so thorough and, and so very uh, significant. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the reason that we exist. Uh, to put it in a more modern uh, term, you and I were made to worship. Chris Tomlin's song there. You and I were made to worship. Amen? But you know what? That fellowship, we were made to worship God. But that fellowship with God was broken. Very early on, in the beginning, when God had created Adam and Eve there in the garden, they chose to sin and to trans transgress, to rebel against God's commandment, and that sweet, intimate fellowship was broken. And from that point forward, things were not as they were meant to be. Things were not as they uh, were no longer as they, they ought to be. And uh, we who were made to worship God have begun to worship everything but God. I talked about that a little bit last week. The world over is searching for something in life to restore that brokenness. Though they don't realize it, they don't know that's what they're doing. And there are all kinds of ways in which people go about trying to fill that void that only God could fill, that which was broken back in the garden. And that is called idolatry. Again, worshiping something, putting something in the place that only God has meant to fill. Amen? And so we discussed last week that there is a propensity, uh, there is a very strong ten tendency in the human heart to worship other things, lesser things, to worship idols, idols of our own making, of our, our own creating. And so we're going to worship something, point blank. We're going to, whether it's, you know, something that's very secular and worldly, or whether it's even, you know, some kind of false religion or some sort of a personal humanistic kind of a self-fulfillment satisfaction, uh, we're going to worship something. We're going to put something in God's rightful place. Now, the Bible says, Jesus said, that God is actively seeking those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen? So God desires, God delights when we worship Him from the heart and when we worship Him according to His truth. And so we have to decide, are we going to worship God, the God of the Bible, the God who has created all things, who has created us, the Father of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Are we going to worship and serve Him, or are we going to worship and serve other things? And so this has been a, an age-old decision that, has, that has, is regularly put before us. You look at the life of Moses. Moses, at the very end of his life, as he's getting ready to die, at the ripe old age of 120 years old, he basically, the, that whole first generation of Israelites who had wandered through the wilderness who died, the next generation came up, and they were the ones that were going to go into the promised land. And so Moses had to recap the whole law before them again, and that's what Deuteronomy is. That's what the fifth book of the Old Testament is. It's Moses recapping the law to the next generation that are going to go into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 30, he says this, verse 15, he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, 
to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and you're drawn away, and you worship other gods and serve them, I announce today that you shall surely perish. And so he says, choose life. Amen? Choose. The choice is yours. It is set before you this day. Who will you worship? Who will you serve? Will you choose life or will you choose death? Well, Joshua is then raised up and put into place as the new leader and commander of Israel, and he takes them forth into the promised land. And they, they, there's the conquest of Canaan that's recorded for us in Joshua, where they take, they take possession of the land that God had promised to them. And as Joshua is nearing the end of his life, in Joshua 24, he says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Man, that's epic. Those are some glorious verses. And so he essentially sets before the people the same decision, the same options that Moses set before them. Still, they had to make this decision. Whom will they serve? Who will they worship? Who will they love? The false gods or the one true and living God? Well, there was no question in Joshua's mind. He already made, that, he made his mind up on that a long time ago, and he never wavered from it. As for he and his house, they were going to serve the Lord. Amen? And we have to make that decision in our own hearts and minds, and sometimes we have to do it daily because it's really not a once-for-all kind of a decision because we are regularly drawn away. This world is regularly pulling at our hearts and our affections and our loyalties and our devotion. And so Jesus deserves, God deserves our worship, our service, our affection, our devotion. Point blank, end of story. But I will say at the same time, there's nothing more meaningful for you and I than to be in right relationship with the Lord. There's nothing sweeter or greater or more meaningful than that. And so to be in right relationship with God is for the glory and honor of His name, but it's for our good too, amen? It is for our good too. You know, you can have everything that this world has to offer and still be empty. Did you know that? It's true. You can have everything that this world has to offer and be totally lost. You can have everything that this world has to offer and forfeit your soul. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Everyone is searching for something. Everybody is looking for meaning. It comes from being who you were made to be. It comes from being who God made us to be. It comes from doing what we were made to do. And it comes from giving God what he deserves, our love, our gratitude, our worship. Amen? So I titled this, Choose to Give Jesus What He Deserves. Choose to give Jesus what He deserves, what He is worthy of. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of everything that we have to give. Amen?
It's not much, but he's pleased with it. That's what's so awesome. We don't have much to give, but what we give, he loves it. He delights in it. He's pleased with it. So why don't we read the text together? I'm going to be reading from the ESV here, and uh, I'll read it for us, pray, and then we will uh, work our way through this text. John chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples he was, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We thank you that you are with us, that you are for us, and that uh, you will indeed speak to us by your word, your sufficient word. We thank you for it. We praise you. You deserve honor and glory. You deserve everything that we have to give. And thank you that you are pleased even here and now, God, as we sing to you, as we open your word, as we study it together, as we fellowship, as the body of Christ gathered here today on the Lord's day. You're pleased, and we thank you for that. Please bless us as your children. Please speak to us because we need to hear from you, Father. And we give you this time, and it's for your glory and for your joy and for your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, point number one. Point number one. Make space for worshiping the Lord in your life. Make space for worshiping the Lord in your life. Now, that might seem like an obvious, a given, but it's a battle, isn't it? It's a battle for us. It's something that we always had to fight to preserve. Well, verses 1 and 2, I'll read them again. It says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, uh, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So we're told here that this is six days before the Passover. So we are in the last week of Jesus' life. And so up to this point, chapters 1 through 11 have been about three years. And then chapters 12 through uh, the end of the book are essentially, well, not the, the very end. There's the time when Jesus uh, rises from the grave there in chapter 21. But between here to chapter 20, we got about a week. And so you see how much it slows down and really begins to, to uh, emphasize these last moments of Jesus. 
And so this is what is sometimes referred to as the Passion Week. It's the beginning of the Passion Week. And Jesus returns to Bethany. Now, Jesus had just been to Bethany. This is about two miles away from Jerusalem. And there was a lot of hostility there. They had already planned that they were going to kill Jesus. So Jesus really wasn't trying to stay in that area. And he had gone away to a, a place of obscurity somewhere in the city of Ephraim. And he has now returned. And this is going to be his last Sabbath. Jesus has celebrated all of these Sabbath, uh, Sabbath days throughout most of his life, all of his life. And now here, this is the last Sabbath before he was to give his life for the world. And this account can also be found in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. And there are some details there that we don't have in John. So I'm going to kind of put this together so we can get the, the full picture of what's going on. And what we're told in those accounts that we're not told here is that this is actually not taking place in the house of Lazarus. Did you know that? Now, you would assume that this was back in the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, wouldn't you? But it's not. We're told that they are in the house of Simon, who had been a leper. Now, this is not the same Simon the Pharisee of Luke chapter 6, either Luke or 6 or 7. Uh, that was a Pharisee. That's a different story at a different time. So we don't want to confuse those. And it was a different woman. It's not the same woman. And so here we are in Simon the leper's house. Now, we can surmise that he was healed of his leprosy because uh, John doesn't say that, but we know he wouldn't be having this uh, feast in his home. He wouldn't be having all these people present if he were, in fact, a leper. So undoubtedly, Jesus had cured him from his leprosy, and I could do a whole message on that alone. But we're also told that Lazarus is at the table. Now, this is quite the company, if we stop and think about it. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? You got Jesus, his disciples. You got this guy, Simon, who was a leper, who had been healed of his leprosy. And then you have this other guy sitting at the table who had been dead for four days and buried. And then Jesus brings him back from the grave. And here they are sitting at a table enjoying fellowship together. Man, the conversation that must have been taking place there. It's amazing. And this wasn't any regular dinner. You know, this would have been a pretty elaborate kind of a feast setting here. Um, as I said, it's leading up to the Passover. So already, undoubtedly, there are a lot of pilgrims that are making their way into Israel. And so undoubtedly, the excitement is already setting in. The festivities are already setting in. And here we are. And uh, I want to I've, we've looked at this before, but I want to give you a look at kind of what the setting would have looked more like. We have an image. I don't have my pointer. I keep forgetting that. But uh, that's a, a triclinium. I'm sure we've all seen the picture of the Last Supper, right? Uh, they're all standing along one, one table. That's not what it would have looked like. It would have looked like this. And so uh, they're sitting very low to the ground. And you see how they're kind of propped up on their elbows, that's kind of the idea. Whenever we're told that they are reclining at the table, that's what is meant. I've always wondered, how in the world do they recline at the table? And so that's what it is to recline at the table, and they would be sitting on a cushion. And so you can see this guy right here closest to us. His feet are kind of behind him, and he's uh, sitting on a cushion there. And that is also how, in the accounts where uh, the, the, um, Jesus would um, either wash his disciples' feet or what we're seeing today where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. That's how that would work because they're sitting low to the ground on a cushion and their feet are actually out behind them. 
And so that really unlocks this picture for us quite, quite well as we consider what this would have looked like. And so that's essentially the way it would have gone down. Does that make sense? Does that help us to kind of like see the setting here? Okay, thank you. That's, that's good. And so there's, you know, various dynamics at play in the story here. We're told that Martha is serving the Lord uh, undoubtedly, fervently. It's quite the, quite the gathering there. Um, be at least 15 people sitting at the table, right? And so um, there's quite, quite a lot of activity going on, and Martha is serving. And then you have Lazarus and Simon sitting there fellowshipping with Jesus. Our Lord just loved dinner table fellowship. You know that? He really did. And then you have Mary who comes out and just pours this lavish and costly devotion out on Jesus. And so this is just such a sweet little setting here. And truly, it was a place that was set for the honor and worship of our Lord, a, a setting that was uh, put there so that gratitude could be given. We're told that it was a dinner that was in honor of the Lord. And so they set this whole thing up so that Jesus could receive honor and gratitude and glory and worship. Amen? And so I just have to ask in our own lives uh, do we do that? Do we make a place to honor the Lord in our lives daily? Not to over-spiritualize this, but I think that we can make that connection, you know? Obviously, we can't do the same thing that they did, as cool as that is, but we can carve out time every day to just stop and to focus our minds on the things of God, to read His Word, to pray, and that's just one way in which we carve out time and space to honor the Lord. And I think that's probably one of the most important things for us is just, I like to first thing in the morning. That's how I like to, like to how and when and where I like to, to meet with the Lord. And once my daughters get up, it's over with. You know, that, that ship has sailed. And so I have to get up early. And uh, man, it's, it's sweet. And so right now I'm reading through Acts and Second Corinthians, uh, just depending and uh, kind of moving through both of those. And I, I, we all need that as Christians. We have to have a, a time and a place where we like to retreat, to go to, and carve out some time to give the Lord the honor that he deserves. The Bible talks about giving him the first fruits of our increase. Well, I see the first part of my day as first fruits, right? Giving him the best. That's when I'm at my best. My brain is, is sharper. There's less distractions of the day that are weighing on me. And so I like to honor the Lord in that way. But really, it should be a lifestyle. When the Bible says that we're to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and to lean not on our own understandings, but in all our ways to acknowledge Him, it's living a life where we are regularly acknowledging the Lord, giving thought to Him and praying for His will and for, for guidance as we try to live our lives and for His strength and for His blessing and for His provision that's living a life that honors the Lord. Worship is it's not less than gathering together and singing to Him, but it is so much more than that, right? And it's living a life that is mindful towards God and the things of God, and we have to be very cautious, very careful, and fight. We have to, in fact, we have to fight for prioritizing giving the Lord this time. 
when we come together on the Lord's Day, that's what, I, I like to, that's what we call this. This is the Lord's Day, Sunday. It's the day set aside that the church comes together to honor the Lord corporately. This is what we're doing right now. This is a time and a place set aside so that we can corporately honor Jesus and give Him glory. Amen? And so is that a priority for you? Is that something that you fight for your life to be, be there every week, to give Him the glory that is due His name? I realize things happen Life happens, sickness happens, we have to travel. But, you know, those things aside, is that something that we take very seriously because the Lord is worthy of it? Because the Lord is worthy of it. Making opportunities in different places throughout the week. At work, um, with our families. Uh, I used to work for a guy that would lead a Bible study uh, for his company in the morning, every morning. So we would... Some of us would get in there as early as 4 o'clock in the morning, but at 8 a.m., everybody would be there, and we would meet in the break room, and he'd teach a little devotional, and we would pray. Pray for the needs of the company, pray for our employees, uh, pray for each other, and that was pretty amazing, pretty, pretty powerful, pretty special. And so that was a man who carved out time for the Lord to be honored in his business amongst his employees. Or are the things of the Lord conspicuously absent from our lives? That's on the flip side. If somebody were to drop down into our lives and kind of take a look at what's going on, would there be any evidence that we're worshipers of the Lord? Any evidence whatsoever? I've, I've heard it put this way. I like this. If Christianity became illegal tomorrow, would the government be able to amass enough evidence to indict you as a follower of Jesus? they could look at your bank account, if they could look at the places that you were going and spending your time, if they came into your house, would they find enough Bibles to put you under the jail? You know, I mean, seriously, what are we given to in our lives? What are the things that we are very serious about? Is it the kind of thing where if Christianity were illegal, we would be thrown in jail and the key, you know, thrown away, as it were? You get what I'm saying? And so are we worshipers of Jesus? Are we very mindful about giving him what he deserves, giving him honor and praise and gratitude and glory? They certainly were. They certainly were. <clears throat> they were very close to the religious hotbed of Israel, and there was already you know, a hit being put out on Jesus, and they had him in their home, guilty by association. In fact, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Is that not crazy? What did Lazarus do? You know, but they want to take this guy out. We'll talk more about that towards the end, but we got to carve out time. We got to make space to honor and worship the Lord in our lives. Amen. He's worthy of it. He deserves it. We'll talk more about that. So point number two, let's bless the Lord with extravagant praise and worship. Let's give him what he deserves. Amen. Let's give him everything we have to give. Well, verse three, Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And so we've already seen what this would have looked like, the setting and the scene. And so we're told now that Mary enters into the picture and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. We can see very easily how that would have, what that would have looked like. And we're told here that it's a pound of very costly spikenard. Now, let's read to you one commentator. He says, a pound, a Roman measure equivalent to about 12 ounces by today's standard, 
was a large amount of perfume. Nard was a fragrant oil extracted from the root and spike of a plant native to the northern mountains of India. So that's from a long, very long way away. And so the roots of this thing were like spikes. And then the flower itself that came out were like spikes. And that's why it's called spike nard. That's the idea there. And so it, it comes from these mountains in a place very far away. And that's why it made it so expensive. Nard was very costly because of the great distance from which it was imported. And it's in an, an expensive alabaster flask. You've probably heard, heard that alabaster vial in which it was stored and kept. And so the spike nard was rare. It was very valuable. And even that which it was contained in was quite costly. Now, this would typically be some kind of a family heirloom something that would maybe be passed down from generation to generation. Um, I read someplace that for some it was like a, a dowry. It was a security that was given to uh, the bride-to-be. That way if something went south and the guy did not fulfill his vows as a husband, she wasn't uh, you know, totally destitute. She had this as kind of a security plan, if you will. And it may have also been at times saved and used for, for burial preparation. Um, evidently, it was not used for Lazarus, but they would wrap the body quickly and put different kinds of spices in there and perfumes. And so uh, this was, this was um, a very special you know, perfume. Now, Mark 14 tells us that she broke the flask. Now, I love that. She didn't just kind of unscrew the lid and pour some out. I mean, she broke it. She broke it. That was it. it, it nothing could be salvaged. It couldn't be, you know, just a dab will do, right? It wasn't that. It was broken. And so I think this kind of speaks of no reservations. No reservations for us. We're not just going to give Jesus a little bit. Jesus, you can have this little corner of my life. Uh, you can have, you know, whatever. No, it's, I'm giving it all to you. I'm pouring it all out. It's extravagant praise and worship. I'm giving it all to you, Jesus. You're worthy of it all. I'm not going to give you the leftovers. Mark 14 and Matthew 26 also tells us that she didn't just pour it out on his feet. She also poured it on his head. She poured it on his head. Now, this is, uh, this is abundance. This is lavish. I mean, this is amazing worship that she would do such a thing. And I love that. And that's what counts in God's economy. That's what counts in God's economy. You know, uh, I love the story in 2 Samuel 24. David is going to purchase some land where he's going to sacrifice to the Lord. Maybe you know the story. And the guy who owns the land says, look, you're going to sacrifice to the Lord. Let me just give you the land. And David refuses that. He says, no, I'm going to buy the land. He says this, I will not, excuse me, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. He said, I insist on paying for this. I'm not going to give to the Lord on that which cost me nothing. I insist that my worship comes at cost, at a cost to myself. I love that. Isn't that amazing? It was not cheap worship. And of course, we know the story in Mark 12 of the little widow that gave two mites. It was like a fraction of a penny. 
And Jesus was watching this as people were coming in and giving in the treasury of the temple, and they were giving a lot. But this lady gave just a tiny little bit, but she gave out of her poverty. And Jesus said that she gave more than everybody in here because she gave out of her poverty. It came at a great cost to her. And so that's, it's lavish. It's, it's sacrificial. It, it, it costs us something. Radical sacrifice. And you know what? Radical sacrifice stems from the conviction that Jesus is worthy. Is Jesus worthy? Is Jesus worthy? You know, I think when we first come to faith in Christ, a lot of times it's, it's very like, you know, there's just this, um, just right here in front of us, there are the immediate realities. I need help. I'm broken. I'm in danger of hell. Um, I know that life is, there's more to life than just dying, right? And so there's this help me, save me. And that's kind of the, the beginning of our relationship with Jesus. But as time goes on and we get to know him and grow in our love for him, uh, I think it, it begins to develop more into Jesus is worthy. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He deserves everything that I have to offer. And he must be glorified. He must be worshipped. His name must be hallowed in my life and in the life of others, right? You come to this place where you know that Jesus is absolutely worthy and he must receive the glory due his name. A really awesome story I've told a number of times over the years, but it's the story of some missionaries, the, the Moravian missionary movement, and these, these couple of missionary guys had learned of an island where there were thousands of slaves on the island and they had not heard the gospel. And as the story goes, as far as I can tell, it's a true story. The, the slave owner said that the gospel would ever would come on this island. He hated God. He hated Jesus. Well, these two young men, trying to figure out how in the world they were going to get on this island, decided to sell themselves into slavery. That's how they were going to get on the island with the gospel message. And so they sold themselves into slavery, and they used the, uh, the proceeds that they got to fund their trip to the island. And as they were sailing off, their family, they were on the shore thinking, this is crazy, what are you doing, weeping. The last thing they yelled out as they sailed away was, worthy is the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. Worthy is the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. Now, I mean, just that phrase alone is incredible. After everything that Jesus has done, after the price that he paid, after the, the cup of suffering that he drank for us, after he has loved us at our lowest when we were still enemies, he is worthy to receive his reward. And what is his reward? The amazing thing, it's us. We are his reward. And to give him the honor and the worship that is due his name because he is Savior. Amen? He alone is Savior. And so giving him praise and glory and worship and adoration is his reward. And these missionaries said that he must receive his reward, even if it means our lives, even if we have to give our lives to that end. Now, that's incredible. That's deep, profound worship and service. Now, we may never have to make a decision like that. And sometimes I think we wonder, would we do that? If, if given the opportunity. Will we lay our lives down? Well, I think that the Bible gives us a way to really test that theory, and that is if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a lot. If we're not 
taking the small opportunities to worship the Lord, if we're not giving Him our praise and our, our service and our resources in little consistent ways, what makes us think that we would do that in the big extreme instances, right? And so, you know, that, that's what compels a person. And so, you know, that, may God give us that kind of conviction, amen, to give Him lavish praise and worship. So not only did Mary worship lavishly, but she worshiped humbly. She worshiped humbly. She wiped his feet with her hair. Now, first off, as I understand it, women didn't let their hair down in public ever under any circumstance. And so this was a real, uh, this was a very bold thing for, for her to do. And we've talked about the act of washing people's feet. That was usually a, a, a customary, it was, it was um, an act of kindness, hospitality that would be given at the door of the home uh, because people traveled by foot most places and the roads were very dirty for all kinds of reasons. It was hot and uh, people get sweaty and you can only imagine walking in sandals, what their feet would be like. And then they're going to come in and they're going to sit together at that table uh, with their feet out, you know, all up on each other. And so you could imagine that that would be kind of a gnarly situation, all right? And so that was also given to the, the servant, the lowest servant of the house. It was their task to wash the feet, which is what's so amazing about how Jesus washed his disciples' feet, right? So we don't know if uh, Jesus said it in that other setting in Luke uh, at, at the Simon the Pharisee's house. He said, I came in and you didn't offer me any of that, but this woman has washed my feet with her tears, and so we don't know here if that had happened or not, but uh, nonetheless, we see her do this incredibly humble act of letting down her hair and washing Jesus' feet and anointing his feet with this very costly, costly perfume. And you know, um, I imagine that this was probably quite awkward and uncomfortable. I mean, if you think about it, it was probably a strange sight to behold. Everybody's sitting here just kicking it, having a good time, and then this kind of happens, and I imagine you could hear a pin drop. And uh, she was uh, not deterred by that. She was going to give honor to the Lord. She was going to serve Him lavishly, sacrificially, and humbly. You know, do we ever feel too awkward or uncomfortable to boldly worship? Again, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when they, when they recover the Ark of the Covenant, they were celebrating, and David was out there. He was dancing with all of his might, dancing furiously. And his wife was watching from, from the house, and she despised him in her heart. She could not believe that he would do such a thing. And she mocked him when he came home. And, uh, you know, about the king basically behaving uh, in such a way, uh, you know, abandoning, abandoning the the dignified, the, the dignified you know, role of the king, as it were, to worship God like that. And his response was essentially, you haven't seen anything yet. You thought that was bad. It's going to get worse. Like, I'm going to worship the Lord with everything that I've got. And I love that. And I think about worshiping. I can just speak to my own um, experience. You know, sometimes I'll be, you know, uh, worshiping in the back there. People are coming in, and I'm singing and praising, and then as someone starts to get closer to me, maybe the decibels drop a little bit, you know, and then they pass by, and then I'm singing again really loud, and I'm like, what is up with that, you know? 
And so, uh, no, sir, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing loud and proud for Jesus. It doesn't matter if anyone's standing in the immediate vicinity or not, you know. And so, do we worship humbly, sacrificially, lavishly, boldly? And then John notes that the house was filled with, with the, the fragrance of the perfume. And, uh, and I love that. There's something about the sense of smell. I read an article about this years ago. With our, with our senses, there's something about the sense of smell above all other senses that, like, you could smell something that maybe you haven't smelled in, like, 30 years, and it just comes right back to you, and it's like you were in that scene, in that moment. And I suspect in some way that's what happened with John here. He remembers. He remembers the aroma like it was yesterday, the fragrance in the room from this awesome act of worship there. And, you know, the Bible uses that kind of language, too, about us about our lives, not a physical aroma like this perfume here, but in a spiritual sense before God. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. So when we love each other, when we walk in love as Christ did for us, Christ loved us sacrificially. When we do that one for another, it is a sweet-smelling aroma. The sacrifice of Christ was a sweet-smelling aroma, as it were, to God. The idea is it's pleasing. When we smell something that is pleasing, you know what that's like, whether it's some food on the grill or, for some of you, maybe you know essential oils, I don't know, uh, whatever it may be, it's just like, man, it's, it's pleasing, right? And so... Paul, he, again in Philippians, they had, uh, they had sent him a care package, something to express their love uh, and concern for, for him. And he says, Indeed, I have all and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that you sent to me. And it's a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so when they gave, when they gave abundantly and sacrificially, Paul said that that is a sweet-smelling aroma. It's pleasing to God. So when we love each other, when we live lives of love, when we give to the needs of others and uh, to the work of the Lord, that, we're told, is a sweet-smelling aroma or fragrance. And I love this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so our lives are to be aromatic, as it were. It is to be a fragrance that is diffused. It's to bring pleasure to God. And really it's to be the, uh, the fragrance, the aroma of Christ to others. To some, it's a very pleasing fragrance. We're told that it's a fragrance that leads to life. But to others... It's a reminder that they are separated from God, that they are outside of His goodness and grace, and it's the aroma of death, Paul goes on to say. But may our lives be, may our worship be a pleasing fragrance to God. Amen? All right, well, let's keep moving. Number three, don't let hypocrisy and self-seeking prohibit worship. Don't let hypocrisy and self-seeking prohibit worship. 
Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. So at this point, Judas speaks up and raises what might be a reasonable concern, honestly, if we were in that same setting. And uh, I I teased with some people and said that I was going to name this passage the frugalness of Judas. But uh, that's not really the point here, obviously. Now the question is asked, why this unnecessary extravagance? Doesn't this seem a little excessive? And so we see it as this glorious act of worship, but not Judas. He saw it as pointless, unnecessary, excessive. And you know what? If we were sitting there, we might be tempted to say or think the same thing. Now, we're told that this was about a year's wage, 300 denarii. A a denarii would be uh, one day for a laborer. And so minus Sabbath days and festivals there in Israel, this would come out to about a a year's wage. And so, you know, a conservative estimate, let's just say $15 an hour minimum wage, that's going to be about $30,000 at the end of the year. So imagine taking a a bottle of perfume worth $30,000 and busting it and pouring it out on Jesus' feet and all over his, his head, as it were. That is shocking. People probably were struck by the sheer cost of such an act. And they were charitable people. They were charitable. And the Passover was approaching, and that is what they would do, especially during the Passover time, was was exercise even more charity than they would normally. But John clarifies for us that that's not what was really going on with Judas. His motives were actually quite sinister. We're told that Judas would regularly pilfer from the money and spend it on himself. That's amazing to me. He had the appearance of caring, but was actually self-seeking. I mean, hear me on this. He had the appearance of caring, but he was actually self-seeking. Worship, man, it can be deceptive. We got to check our hearts. We have to guard our hearts because we can be deceived about what we're actually doing when we think that we are worshiping. You know, we can be very critical of others and be very self-righteous in our worship. This was an awesome opportunity for Judas to sit there and just praise and and glorify Jesus and just to share in this experience. But no, instead he was being cynical and critical. And man, we can do that. It's so easy to do that. I remember years ago, man, I was, um, I just started getting into like really dressing up for church. And I was at a church where you could do that. It didn't really matter. You could dress up or not. And so I was wearing my, you know, three-piece suit. Just, anyways, I don't want to ham that up too much. But anyways, and there was this guy, he was a pastor, and he was just very, uh, man, just energetic all over the place, bouncing around, very youthful, and, um, I don't know. I just had this weird thing in my heart with this guy. I don't know if anybody can relate with that, but for whatever reason, it just seemed like there was no end to like the, 
the goofiness or something with this guy. I don't know what it was, but I just remember one day during worship, he was up on stage playing this drum and just leaping up in the air and praising God. And I was just out there looking very holy, foaming out the mouth, looking at that guy like, what is that guy's deal? And then it was like, man, what's wrong with you, Rob? This guy is worshiping with all his heart, and here you are looking good and just hating and you ain't worshiping the Lord, and, uh, you know, it, we got to watch out for that kind of stuff. There are all kinds of distractions that abound that cause us. We're saying the words, but there's something else going on in here. There's something else going on in here. And uh, Judas allowed that, his hypocrisy and self-righteousness, to, uh, to rob him of this opportunity. You know, we can make worship all about us. What are we getting from it? How does it make me feel? That is all bad. That is all bad. And so, it's, is Jesus being glorified? Are we giving him honor and praise? And so, that, that's really the way we have to be looking at it. And so, um, what's sad is, is Matthew indicates that the rest of the disciples got carried along with this, that they spoke up too. Kind of like Judas says this, he's the, the rabble rouser, and they're all like, yeah, yeah, he's right. What's up with that, Jesus? And we have to be careful how we influence other people. Are we influencing people to worship heartily, to give the Lord what he deserves, or vice versa? What's amazing to me is that the disciples had no clue about Judas. They didn't know this. In fact, as we will see at the Last Supper, Judas went out to go betray Jesus, and they thought he was going out to get, do a charitable deed for the homeless and the needy. And so all this time, they had no clue who Judas, Judas actually was. Now, what really blows me away is that Jesus knew exactly who he was. Jesus knew that he was pilfering from the money box, and Jesus didn't say anything to him about it. Does that not... I mean, that's, actually, that's frightening is what that is. That's frightening that he was, uh, Jesus knew, and just let him do it. Didn't say anything about it. He was a hypocrite. He was self-seeking. Uh, he was self-righteous, even it would seem. He was an imposter, is what he was. And he was not giving Jesus the worship that he deserved. And he was allowed to continue on in that state. And so let that not be true for us. Let that not be the case for us. Let us make worship meaningful and urgent. That's the next point. Let us make worship meaningful and urgent. Verse 7, Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. We're told in both Matthew and Mark that Jesus defends her. Um, Jesus says in Mark 14, she has done a good work for me. And in Mark 14, 9, um, he says that wherever the gospel is preached in the world, this woman, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. That's incredible. And here we are. Here we are. That's a fulfillment of that very, that very thing that he spoke to them. Jesus defends her actions as very profound and meaningful and significant. Very significant. In fact, he said this is preparation for his burial. Now, I'm not sure that Mary knew that what she was doing was in preparation for his burial. There was some kind of a prophetic nature going on here, and I don't even think she realized it, but Jesus knew 
that he was getting ready to die, and the way he saw it was that this was preparation for his burial. That's, that's pretty amazing. You know, uh, what's getting ready to happen immediately after this? The triumphal entry. And throughout the Bible, throughout biblical history, they would anoint kings with oil as a, as a symbol of them being raised up by God and anointed by God's Spirit. Undoubtedly, there's some significance even in that. But you know what? I am sure of this. Whether she knew all this or not, this was not an empty and insincere act. We just look at Luke 7, the story of the woman who did the same thing. She poured out this oil on Jesus and worshipped him there. And Jesus told Simon the Pharisee that this woman has been forgiven much. Therefore, she what? She loved much. So it was an act of love. It was an act of love being poured out there on Jesus. And Jesus commended her for it. Jesus commended her for that. She gave the very best that she had to give. The very best. We're running out of time, so I'm trying to figure out what I want to do here. What should I cut out? Nothing? Okay, I'll move quick. This would be the exact opposite of Malachi. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Then there's 400 years between the time of that book and when the New Testament Gospels, that, that begins with the birth of Jesus. And there was the temple worship that was happening. It had been restored. But the people, they were not bringing the best that they had to offer. They were bringing the worst. They were bringing lamb, you know, goats and lambs and, and so on to, to offer and sacrifice. But they were maimed, lame, crippled, blind. It was just I'm going to keep all the good stuff for me, and God, I'm going to give this to you out of obligation, but I'm going to give you that which really I don't want anyways. It's useless to me, right? That's what was happening. And the priests were actually offering this stuff to God. And so worship had been emptied of its richness and fullness. People gave the worst that they had to give. They gave the leftovers. Worship had been profaned. And the people's hearts were exposed. The Lord was robbed of the glory that was due His name. Man, may that never be the case for us. May we give the Lord what He deserves. Amen? May we give Him extravagant praise. May we guard our hearts and guard our worship. May we guard our hearts and guard our worship. And it's not that Jesus didn't care for the poor. He says, the poor you have with you always... What he's essentially saying is, I'm going to be gone soon, and the poor will still be here for you to care for. But there's urgency here, and I like that. Her worship, there was a sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency, and so we have so much time here on this earth to serve the Lord, to give Him praise, to invest in eternity, and then the time's gone. And so we have to come to Jesus with this sense of priority and urgency. We need to know the good things, the important things, and the critical things. And we need to not get those things confused. We need to know the difference and not be distracted. That's essentially what I think Jesus is getting at. Last point, believing in Jesus is pure worship. Believing in Jesus is pure worship. 
Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may, uh, might also see Lazarus, whom had been raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now many of the Jews had made their way to Bethany from, Israel, uh, from uh, Jerusalem there, and they wanted to see Jesus, but they really wanted to see Lazarus. It's hard to say whether these were half-sincere seekers or not. Some, some would say that they were. But it tells us in verse 11 that people saw uh, Lazarus and they believed Jesus on, an, on account of it. So much so that the priests wanted to kill Lazarus. Talk about destroying the evidence. Talk about an extreme example of suppressing the truth. Remember, we've been talking about that, that we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's exactly what that was. They wanted to kill Lazarus so to remove this very visible reminder of the truth and the power of Jesus. And so this is the opposite of worship. This is blasphemous rejection of the light. And you know what? The light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light, the Bible says. And we see that. But you know what? Nothing glorifies Jesus like believing and trusting him. Jesus said that if you believe him, then you also believe the one who sent him. So I implore you, I implore you, believe Jesus, be saved. If you don't know him, just surrender. Surrender. What are you fighting for? What are you clinging to? What are you putting your hope in? Stop. Turn. Turn from it. Abandon that. Abandon those false idols and turn to the true and living God. The Savior, the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us as a payment for our sins. King Jesus, he lived perfect obedience to God's law, and then he died a sinner's death in our place. He obeyed God's law for us, and he absorbed God's wrath that was intended for us in love so that we would receive his forgiveness and his salvation, so that we would be children of God. If you haven't believed him, believe him. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of worship. That is taking God at his word and saying, yes, Lord, I believe you. That is worship. I hope you know that. When you believe Jesus, when you believe his promises, when you trust him, you are worshiping him. May he receive the reward for his suffering. Give him the glory due his name. Give him worship. Bow the knee to your maker. May he be your savior. And you know what? This applies to us believers. When you choose to believe the promises of Jesus every day, when you choose to obey Jesus in your life, that is worship. That is giving him glory. When you doubt him, when you doubt his goodness, when you doubt his grace and his provision and his ability to lead you and to guide you and to strengthen you, when you doubt those things, that is not worship. But when you believe Jesus and say, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he's for me and that he's with me, that he will provide for my needs according to his riches and grace, that he will see me through to the very end, that he will get me past this struggle that I cannot seem to have victory over. When you believe him, when you believe his word, that is worship, my friends. That is worship. And believing him is true and pure worship. So let's give him the worship and the glory due his name. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray. Jacoby's going to come up and close us with a song.
Father, we praise you. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you our trust. We want to pour out our hearts before you afresh today as we remember the glories of Calvary, the agonies and the sufferings of our Savior, and his resurrection where he overcame sin, the grave, Satan, and he had, you've given us brand new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've given us a brand new heart, and we praise you for that. Lord, we want to give you everything that we have and then some because you're worthy of everything that we have, and may we not give you anything less. Praise you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.